This Knowledge at Wharton podcast was produced in conjunction with EY's Global Private Equity Center. For more information, please visit ey.com slash private equity. Part two of this Knowledge at Wharton podcast on private equity looks at the falling market share for PE in emerging markets, along with the rising investments in developing countries outside of the BRICS and the increasing importance of operational improvement. The participants include Stephen M. Samet, a senior fellow and lecturer at Wharton, and Michael Rogers, EY's global deputy private equity leader. All right, uh, circling back to emerging markets and fundraising. Fundraising in emerging markets hasn't kept pace with what's been going on elsewhere. Um, the emerging market share of total global PE funds uh, raised dropped from about 20% of the total in 2012 uh, to 12% in 2013, and many analysts say this likely reflects a bit of slowing in economic growth in those markets overall, despite some countries that are bucking that trend individually. So, Steve, maybe you could field this one first. Uh, what's your overall view of private equity in emerging markets over the next year or two? Right. No, it's a very important question. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that uh, 2013 was an aberration, um, uh, but it is reflective of a number of things, and that is uh, the uh, – we're talking about very sensitive numbers here because the numbers are rough, generally pretty small. Uh, so for um, the emerging market fundraise to keep pace, especially after coming off of a series of very strong years, uh, na- naturally there is going to be a, a, percented, a percent of the whole decline when there's an upsurge in capital raising in the developed markets. And I think that's what we've seen here. Yes, there uh, uh, m- most of these countries did raise less in 2013 than 2012. Uh, but that did not represent, really, I, I think, a, um, a sea change in attitude, um, um, you know, maybe some moderation uh, and a rebalancing of portfolios from emerging markets to developed markets. Uh, I, I don't know that it's going to have that much of a negative operational effect or strategic effect for the funds involved. Uh, at least that's my take on it. Yeah, and I think, Steve, I'd agree with you completely on that. I mean, there was a slight decline in fundraising figures for emerging markets that does follow a decade worth of essentially up markets in, in uh, funding for, for emerging markets. And I think, uh, you know, Steve hit on an important point. We, we He called it rebalance. We, we, we've been looking at that as a theme in terms of uh, some of the re- recent research we've written, including our PE Watch that we just released. Uh, we really see it as a rebalance and a pausing as opposed to a, a directional change. Uh, I think everybody still believes that the, there's a growing uh, demographic and a middle class in some of these emerging markets that are going to be there a long time. You know, For example, the average age in the U.S., I believe, is around 36, and in Africa, it's about 18. So you have to envision that as those folks come into their consuming years, there'll be uh, greater GDP in those markets, and uh, private equity will more likely be around to try and take uh, advantage and work with those folks in those communities to, to do transactions. I think it's interesting to note that in 95, about 5% of all private equity was in 1995, I should say, all private equity in, in uh, invested in emerging markets has only represented about 5% of the total. And today, if you fast forward, it's about 13%. And so you can, there, there's a there's a long tailed trend here. 
Um, as more and more GDP comes out of emerging markets, I think we'll see more capital flow in. But there was a little bit of a, um, you know, just a, a course correction, if you will, on, on the, in 2013. And I think that, um, you know, that it should go back to a rising market over time. I have another point to make, which is not necessarily scientific, but I think it's 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 an interesting observation. Uh, and that is, uh, I personally give MBA students at schools like Wharton and its peer institutions a lot of credit for seeing what's coming down uh, the pike. They um, uh, they've come to school after being out in the workforce for a while. Uh, they are very international, very cosmopolitan, and if you if you measure uh, uh, the attitude or of of what is likely to come based on the interest of students here at Wharton and elsewhere in anything to do with emerging markets, particularly private equity, uh, that, that, that tells me that uh, there's an energy here that is uh, going to be overwhelming. And, uh, and this is not a fad. This is something the students really see as characterizing uh, the economies uh, during their careers. So you shouldn't lose sight of that. Well, I, I was at a, a conference recently in Africa, and you should. The energy there is very, very exciting. And I think if a young professional uh, that wants to go into private equity was not considering spending some time on the African continent, I think they'd be shortchanging themselves. I mean, the industry has evolved to a point where it's going to be very, very exciting over there for a lot of people. Uh, there's another thing about this, which is that when we talk about averages, which is what we've been talking about, it tends to smooth things out, but Within that is the nuance of, of some uh, countries that are bucking the trend. So within emerging markets, um, would you care to pick out a couple that will that will buck the trend? That <laughs> some are bringing up the average and some are bringing it down. So uh, maybe talk about a couple that are that are bringing it up a little bit or likely to bring it up a little bit. Well, I just to start off with, I think if you go back a year or so, a lot of people people spoke about the BRICS, of course. And I think you still see, uh, uh, anecdotally, a lot of interest in, in China, in Brazil, and, and somewhat in India. But what we do is we travel around the globe, and we've been in, into, into China, we've been to Latin America, been to Africa uh, recently. And th- there's a couple places we hear more often than we used to. Uh, the Andean region of Latin America, which is really uh, Colombia and Mexico primarily, even Peru and to some degree, often gets brought up as a, a location that because of the Pacific Alliance and the fact that they are reducing trade barriers and, and uh, trying to make that an attractive place to do business, uh, that seems to pop up on more and more radar screens these days. Uh, but it's interesting how fickle it is because last year Brazil would have been very, very hot. This year, you know, I was just down in Brazil last week and they're, you know, struggling from, a, from an investment perspective. Uh, Turkey was on everyone's radar screen and, of course, uh, with a little bit of civil unrest suddenly is, is sort of taking a little bit of a back seat. Uh, but I think that uh, Indonesia, we, we talk, we, we hear from folks about Indonesia, um, the sort of the Andean uh, region of Latin America, and, uh, and those, those seem to be popping up on our radar screens anyway. I, uh, those are all very good examples. Uh, 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 there's something I'd like to raise that maybe is an offset factor here, and, and I don't know what the EY research shows. Um, it, in your report... 
uh, you do point out that the size of the equity check is actually uh, uh, declining fairly, fairly uh, uh, consistently, if not rapidly. And at the same time, uh, there is a significant uh, growth in the amount of, of leverage. Uh, uh, and what's very interesting is that leverage is no longer restricted to the U.S. and European markets. We're starting to see more and more leverage work its way into the emerging markets. Uh, I, I, I wonder if the availability of that uh, leverage offsets maybe the decline in, in the investment in the funds themselves. Uh, uh, because there will be enough, there will be sufficient capital to do the same number of transactions, maybe even at higher valuations. Uh, so there, th- there's um, things to look at during 2014 that in the 2015 studies are going to be very, very interesting in, in my view. Uh, so I, I don't I don't know if you've reflected on this issue of leverage and well you know of course we we look at it because that's you know a major component of what people are willing or capable of paying and in the uh, the you know we talked earlier about the strength of the uh, capital markets in in the U S and, and in Europe the banks are getting a little bit stronger certainly in the U S we've seen you know debt multiples rise. Um, almost in some cases back to where they were uh, at, at, you know, kind of pre-crisis of 08, uh, which, you know, should give us a little historical reflection just on that fact. But I think, uh, Steve, as you mentioned, around the world, the development of the capital markets in some of these countries is allowing for more leverage to go into these transactions. Although it's still in some markets, there's not really, you know, a debt capital market to, to speak of. Not very many banks available, you know, certainly like Africa and some places in Latin America. You know, when a private equity goes in there, they're, they're bringing most of the capital with them. Uh, and, and maybe they put it in in different tranches or it's, there's mezzanine or something else. But there's really not a traditional bank market as we would anticipate. But it is growing. There are certain markets, as you point out, where there is going to be better, you know, uh, bank support, if you will, in the marketplace. I think to to that point, um, uh, kind of running off on a tangent here, but I, I think it's it's worth reflecting that uh, um, in the developed markets, we are still looking generally at control positions being transacted. In many of the emerging markets, partially because of family businesses and the discomfort of the promoters or entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, still gaining with the way private equity operates. These are still largely growth equity um, uh, investments, non-control positions in many cases. So this uh, uh, this creates a very different uh, a- atmosphere. And I think in in many instances, if the um, if the promoters had the opportunity uh, to bring in leverage, that's probably their preference. Um, but again, this remains to be seen. This is real time development. Absolutely. I wanted to talk about mergers and acquisitions. So M and A activity has come back strong, with many citing the return of corporate interest in this area. The corporate interest means both more opportunities and more competition, since many corporations will be offloading companies, but others will be in the hunt for buying. So corporations are sitting on a lot of cash, as we all know. Uh, Competition piece could be an important factor affecting private equity firms. What's your view of all of this and how it will play out? Well, I'd say uh, that there's been some 
big deals that have sort of hit the headlines. And uh, what we'd like to try and contrast that with is we uh, have just issued our 10th annual corporate capital confidence barometer, and it's 1,600 uh, individuals, executives around the world in 54 countries, and we try and get a sense of where they're headed M&A-wise. And uh, it was interesting. The respondents this time were talking about uh, the, the doing larger transactions, so maybe getting a little, stepping out a little bit more on the curve, using the credit conditions that we were chatting about earlier that are very favorable, uh, maybe increasing leverage a little bit. And it's going to allow, I think, some more companies to do some some measured but bolder transactions in this year. Um, but, you know, despite the conditions being, the fundamentals being, you know, great and in place. I mean, you know, the uh, the capital markets being there, kind of low volatility right now, you'd think you'd be, you know, out doing transactions. But on the corporate side, what we're seeing is that, uh, there's just no real impetus to go spend that cash. I mean, you touched on the cash values and the, that are sitting on the books of a lot of these companies. Um, I think a lot of corporate treasurers have long memories, and they think back to the point where we had some very, very large uh, public entities here in the U.S. who had difficulty floating their commercial paper uh, on you know, overnight. Uh, and and so I think people go into this, uh, they're building their balance sheets uh, and just gaining more and more strength. Or uh, you could call it maybe hoarding cash a little bit. And and but at the same time, they're being very cautious about you know the the, the future out there and what they're going to do. I don't think you're going to see uh, you know people going out and doing uh, things that are not affiliated or adjacencies that don't make sense for their businesses. The boards won't tolerate it. And then on the other side of it, you've got the uh, a little bit of the push and pull. You've got the activists out there that are sort of looking at this and, and to your point saying, boy, you're just building cash. You're not really doing anything with this. You're not paying dividends uh, to the extent that you're generating cash. Uh, you know, you need to return some of this shareholdings shareholdings, or you need to uh, you know, get more aggressive on the M&A front. But my sense is we've been holding our breath waiting for some of this cash to come back in the market for such a long time. I just wouldn't count on it all flooding back in at once. I think there'll be a trickle out. People will see some strategic deals they want to do, and they'll take advantage of that. On the PE side, we get the sense from the PE clients that we visit with that they'd like 2014 to be a better M&A year. They'd like to do more deals. They'd like to put more capital out. But uh, now you've got the uh, the confluence of uh, rising valuations in the public markets, a little bit more competition from the corporates. And so it, it'll be a, uh, you know, kind of a fight it out kind of year uh, to, to make your numbers and to get deals done. So I know that they're concerned about that. I, I That assessment, I think, is spot on. And I, I would size it up much the same way. Uh, uh, the necessity to deleverage hit everyone very hard, and the deleveraging psychology is appearing to have a very long tail. Uh, and those habits are, are not going to reverse themselves uh, uh, too quickly. Uh, having said that, uh, I think many corporations realize now that they cannot neglect or delay entry into these markets, especially those countries that have rapidly growing middle classes. Otherwise, they're going to miss the boat. Uh, and many of them recognize that they are indeed in competition, especially on the African continent uh, with, uh, uh, with Chinese uh, concerns. Uh, and we'll have to uh, we'll have to find ways of entering the markets. The good news for them is, 
the available properties are almost certainly have been much better managed uh, and are more professionally organized than the properties were even five years ago. Uh, as as the uh, private equity firms have had to hold their properties and focus attention on operations uh, uh, and governance, uh, they're producing much more viable uh, candidates that could actually be accredited um, uh, in an acquisition and not represent a, a hit on earnings, uh, at least on a very selective basis. So uh, companies that, are, that start to look uh, and network themselves with what the private equity firm, firms are doing, I think we'll find some, some manageable opportunities. You know, Steve, just to add to that a little bit, I, I think that the, um, we're sort of in an environment of low growth. Um, I, I think the Fed and everybody's watching just to make sure, you know, can we hit some growth projection in the U.S.? Uh, I think Europe's afraid of deflation. So you, you've got a situation where there's not a lot of consumer-driven growth. And so for private equity or others to go spend a lot of money on a company that's only growing 1% or 2%, that's a hard sell to the board. And so you've got to have a very, very strong investment thesis going into it that is strategic, makes sense. You have synergies to be gained, et cetera, because it's just not as easy as it used to be. So that's interesting. So it's a, on the one hand, it's a little bit of remembering when the hammer came down mm-hmm. and, and wanting to have some, some, uh, something ready for an emergency. But uh, maybe they'd be able to forget that more quickly or more easily if they had some sense that there was going to be some decent, whatever that might be, strong growth in the economy as opposed to, I don't want to say we're muddling through, but, you know, it's, it's – it's steady, but it's 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 not even in the U.S. enough to bring unemployment down to uh, t- to where it was before the crisis. I mean, not even close. And this has been going on five six years already. Uh, so it's it, it's kind of the dual thing. It sounds like. Well, and I think it also speaks to the fact that we see a lot of M and A activity in in tech and in healthcare, which are two, if you might look at it that way, two of the higher growing industries out there. And so I, I think that that tends to support the thesis of borrowing money and going out and going through the, the hassles of actually doing a deal. If you have some upside on it, that uh, makes it all the better. 2013 and early activity in 2014 indicate that leverage is once again available. We talked about this a little bit. Available and foundational in deal structuring. In recent years, the emphasis in the development of portfolio companies shifted from achieving alpha through financial engineering to improving revenues, margins, and global reach. Uh, Do you think that 2014 will see a return to an emphasis on financial engineering, or are the operational disciplines here to stay? Well, I'll take that, but I have a question for Michael first, and is do you agree with the premise of the question uh, regarding the availability of leverage? Yes. Okay. So there is more... Debt capital available, right. I think. Is okay. Yeah, your 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 report was suggestive of that. Uh, uh, I, you know, the 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 answer to the end of the question of the operational disciplines here to stay, uh, I think absolutely yes. And uh, the hiring patterns in many of the private equity firms, large and f- small, 
reflect that uh, uh, there's an increasing emphasis on putting together uh, teams that can manage uh, uh, and add value to the portfolio companies. Uh, and I think the reliance on uh, basically structuring debt in different ways, paying off debt, breaking up companies in order to um, uh, uh, reduce debt obligations, uh, while that still may be part of the investment hypothesis of a lot of uh, buyout funds in particular, uh, I think the emphasis is going to be on growth because although things are looking nice right now with the IPO market, that could change very abruptly and firms may end up ha having to hold their positions um, uh, over the long term again. Uh, so performance acceleration has been a very important theme for many of the funds, and I see that as as uh, uh, more and more likely to continue. Uh, many students in MBA programs are, uh, at conferences and the like are always asking questions like, do I need to have an, a, a banking background or an M&A background to break into private equity? And increasingly, I'm hearing from uh, panelists when asked that question from the private equity firms that, well, no um, strong operational skills and, and uh, learning how to run things uh, are of equal value. And that's not something I heard five or ten years ago. Well, and I'd add to that. I think the complexity of private equity has has enhanced uh, over the last uh, you know couple of decades. I mean, when the industry first started in the '80s and '90s, a lot of those deals uh, were financially oriented. You could you could afford to uh, you know buy something that uh, a little bit less expensive than maybe where it should have been trading. Uh, you could put a lot of leverage on it, and you could you know ride the wave up. And oftentimes sell out and uh, make nice returns for yourself and your investors. I think many of those sort of opportunities have been uh, sought out and and taken advantage of. And I think that those uh, sort of simple situations are are sort of gone, if you will. It's it's uh, a little too hard to uh, to uh, you know find those any longer. And so what you're seeing now is people generally are having to pay a more full price. Uh, and the sellers are gotten have gotten smarter, so they want a fuller price. They want to, and they prep their businesses for sale. So the you know private equity or corporates, uh, you know, buy these. But if if a private equity buys it, it has to have an outstanding investment thesis on the front end. It has to uh, execute flawlessly through the diligence phase uh, and get the deal structured correctly. But then, you know, equally as important as the buying and the selling is the value creation phase. And so I, I think. Uh, Steve, to your question earlier, we definitely agree that there's more leverage available. But I think where we're at now in the cycle of uh, PE as an industry is if you're not a good operator and you can't add value to the business that you purchased, you're probably not going to do very well on the exit side of it. And so we now see um, businesses, as, as Steve touched on, you know, the the uh, MDs at the private equity funds work on the front end. They identify the opportunities. They work with the bankers. They work with folks like ourselves doing deal origination. They execute the deal. And then they begin this process of, of the holding period where they're working on value creation. But oftentimes there are now value creation or operating partners on board at these funds that, that you know, work in conjunction with the MDs that sought and, and, and acquired the deal. And they'll live with that for several years until getting it prepared for exit. Uh, I had, was down in Brazil last week. I saw David Rubenstein down there from Carlisle. He mentioned that 
really at this phase of the um, of the of the game in private equity, if you have to be a good operator and you have to uh, add strategic value to the entities you purchase, or you will come up short uh, uh, when it comes to uh, returns at the end of the day. And I think that we would agree with that completely. And in fact, if you look at the hiring the funds are making, it parallels the way many of the firms like ourselves are hiring. We're hiring more and more professionals in that field so that we can match up and be of assistance to our clients as they uh, own and operate these businesses for a longer period of time. Uh, I think the you know, kind of buy and flip days are over. These are mostly, uh, you look at these deals now, oftentimes it's not uncommon to have five, seven, nine-year holds. And if you're not adding any value to it, then you're just uh, uh, you're not helping your investors earn the returns they should. So uh, I think we, uh, we believe wholeheartedly in the uh, value creation phase. This, this trend, which seems to have been forced by the financial crisis, would that naturally have happened maybe over a longer period? Because what, what I'm getting at is it seems to me like private equity is almost, uh, uh, by, by definition, in danger of being a victim of its own success. So if you're always finding the firms that, could be, that, that aren't getting the most value out of them, I mean, eventually, all of those firms are going to be found out, and the ones that haven't been found out will learn that they had better straighten themselves out or something maybe not good is going to happen to them, whether it's a buyout situation, you know. And so you sort of like, you know, you're culling the herd to the point where, you know, all the sick ones have been taken out of the herd. And and therefore it gets into, you know, more of the situation where, you know, it's buy and hold and improve operations over a longer term. It's almost like you, you, you know, you buy a company because you think you can do better than management versus this is a badly run company. And, you know, we're we're going to we're going to take it make a couple surface changes and flip it and you know make a quick profit steve uh we could probably do a podcast on just this but i'll i'll ask answer give one reflection on it in my view and one of the reasons i've been so interested from an academic and research point of view in private equity is i concluded a long time ago that the hostile takeovers that characterized a lot of uh, buyout activity in the 1980s actually went a long way to improving the quality of American businesses uh, for exactly the reasons you you cited, and, and that is uh, management realized that if, uh, if they weren't putting full attention and uh, uh, driving growth in their own companies, they were going to be out of a job. Uh, and uh, I, I think there was a lot of self-policing and self-cleansing of some very bad corporate practices. So I think that was one of the unintended but positive consequences of the whole LBO movement uh, back in that period of time. Uh, and I think that still continues today. I mean, it's certainly a factor in the developed markets. Um, uh, the, the emerging markets are probably less vulnerable in that regard for now. Uh, but as those economies become uh, uh, more sophisticated and businesses become more transparent, uh, uh, management is, is going to see the same threat. That's my take on it. Yeah, and I would add, Steve, to that. I think the other discipline that's there that may not have been there as prevalently uh, in, in the past was the, the uh, LPs really, you know, digging in and, and monitoring these assets that they, you know, I think they were more passive in the past. And so 
the returns kind of were flowing in without much uh, adjustments being made in terms of operating the businesses. But now, from what I understand, I've obviously not been part of these meetings. From what I understand, when the LPs come calling and you're talking about fundraising from a GP perspective, the LPs will definitely ask you, what's your value creation plan? How do you go about extracting value? Show me where you did it. How did your returns get enhanced as a result of that? And if you can't demonstrate that or don't have a good thesis or a good plan, then you will fall uh, to the bottom of the list. As you were describing, I mean, how will there be a uh, fallout over time? That's where the fallout will be because if you can't demonstrate that you've been able to add value and enhance your returns, then uh, as an LP, I I can choose to go where I want and I'll go somewhere that uh, somebody does have a robust uh, package and and program to extract value from these entities. So I think it will self-fulfill over time. Listeners can access past podcasts plus additional insights into private equity at our private equity website. And the address is kw.wharton.upenn.edu slash private hyphen equity. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.